recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Saturday, November 30th, 2013. It's impossible to imagine that 11 months have passed so quickly. Uh, I'm sure that 2014 will be here next week, and I'm sure we'll all still be here after December 21st. Tonight is... um. A little different. It, it's not the Sea Lion series. We will get back to Pragmatic Genesis in the weeks to come. There's no doubt. Tonight, I spent the, the week in upstate New York. I wasn't here last night. I want to thank both Brian and Mike Delaney of ProSync.org for filling in for me last night. I, I haven't had a chance to listen to the podcast, to the program that they did on the homosexual agenda in America, it was kind of uh, a lot of people um, li- listened to the program and a few people told me that, that the, they, they weren't prepared. Let me say that, you know, it was a discussion program and let me say that the topic was decided at the last minute and they were doing me the favor of filling in for me and, and others had told me they did do a good job for an off-the-cuff program that they um, decided on a topic at the last minute because they were going to do a 9-11 program. Mike Delaney facing a debate with John Friend on many aspects of the 9-11 issue tonight did not want to do a 9-11 program. I can't blame him for that, not, not one bit. He, he, um, he has to prepare for his debate tonight. That's more important than filling in for me. He, he offered us a good program last night, and, and we thank him for it. I'd also like to thank Gerald, Gerald Mosley for calling in and participating. Tonight is um, Brian's program. I have a few things to add. I didn't have time for being on the road all day yesterday and, and being in New York all week. I didn't have time to prepare for it to the degree I would like to. Tonight we're going to offer some commentary and an overview of the Jews and, and their lies by Martin Luther, the great reformer. And, and he, he made his mistakes, but, but um, and, and he had his own transformation, I believe. But he, he certainly was on a lot of the right tracks concerning, well, our friends, the Jews. And, and I say that sarcastically. So tonight we have um, Sword Brethren here once again, and, and he's... Well, well, the ball's in his court. I, I have a few things to add, but hello, Brian. Hello. How are you tonight? Hello. Praise Yahweh. Absolutely. I'd like to start off by saying, you know, few Lutherans today know much about the history of their denomination, the history of the Protestant Reformation, or just plain history for that matter. Almost none of them are aware of Martin Luther's views on Jews, and those who are aware seem to go out of their way to placate the Jews and prove how pro-Jewish they are by denouncing their own founder. On October 31st of 1517, Martin Luther tacked his 95 theses to the door of the Church of Wittenberg, and he ignited a controversy that would see his Catholic enemies vying to kill him. The zeal with which his Catholic foes pursued him would pale in comparison to what the Jews would do to his followers in the decades and centuries to come. The De Medici's provoked a massacre of nearly 100,000 Protestants, known as Huguenots, in France on St. Bartholomew's Day in 1572, and then they sparked the French Wars of Religion, followed soon after by the Thirty Years' War. 
Martin Luther made the mistake that so many have made in assuming the Jews were the children of Abraham, the Israelites, simply because they claimed that heritage. Martin Luther also made the mistake of assuming the De Medicis and the Borgias were Italians because they were born in Italy. Some of them were the De Medicis. Some of the Borgias were from Spain, though, but they moved to Italy. They were expelled and fled to Italy, I should say. And they made a pretense of being genuine Italians. Even still, Martin Luther was a true scholar whose views on the Jews developed as he came to have more experiences with them and as he came to have a better understanding of scripture, gospel, history, and the nature of the Jew, from a man who originally believed the Jews should be compelled to convert to Christianity, Luther eventually came to declare, were I to baptize a Jew, I would conduct him to a bridge over the river Elbe, tie a millstone around his neck, and cast him in. And Bill, you said you'd like to discuss some of his early views where he shows some ignorance of the fundamental issues of Jews as a race, and then we will get into the later views and later statements where he's really come full circle and he shows a clear understanding that they're a serpent seed. Well, well right. First, let's give a little more historical background as to Martin Luther and, and when he actually um, came to fame and when basically what we right. today is Lutheranism had, had developed, right? I, I mean, there seems to be a struggle for control between crypto-Jews and, and perhaps non-crypto-Jews in, in, in Roman Catholic Church in the 15th century. And we first we have um, Alexander VI is Rodrigo Borgia, it is his name, right. right? And he's the Pope, Alexander VI. And he was basically accused of being a Murano Jew by his successor, who, who, who was um, Pope Julius II, right? Pope Julius II. And um, Julius had put down a, um, a revolt, and, and, and the revolt developed from a demand for reforms in, in the Catholic Church, from Louis XII, the King of France. And, and Julius faced that down with the help of the Swiss Guard, and, and um, who, who defeated Louis XII. And he convened the Fifth Lateran Council. Now, now, the Fifth Lateran Council was meant to strengthen the position of the papacy, but it was also meant to institute reforms through, throughout. To root out corruption throughout the church, right. And he suddenly died and was replaced by a, a pope. I, I hate to call them popes, but I have to use the word. But from the other Italian crime family, the De Medici's, the De Medici's. Now, now Giovanni De Medici at that point becomes the um, Pope Leo X. And in the Fifth Lateran Council, the Fifth Lateran Council usury became acceptable to the Roman Catholic Church. It was micro-usury through the, um, through, through the sanction of the Monte di Pieta, which were basically, um, well, well, they're called financial institutions, right? But they were basically pawn shops is what they were. The, the church called them financial institutions, which were to provide loans to the needy, 
but they were basically pawn shops. And, and it was basically a church approval of usury. And the Fifth Lateran Council demanded that all bishops everywhere in Europe and, and, and in the Catholic world accept the Monte Dei Pieta, which were pawn shops. And, and well, you know, there, there's no way to improve the condition of the poor by loaning them money. All you're going to do is impoverish them further. Well, well of course. Uh, of course. And, and th this was the Fifth Lateran Council. That now another... Um, very important bull which was issued during the Fifth Lateran Council what was that before any book could be printed anywhere, the local Catholic bishop had to give permission for the book to be printed. This is how the church couldn't really deal with the advent of the printing press, which delivered the Bible into the hands of common people on a much right. larger scale than previous, that they couldn't deal with that, and this was their response to it. That but we should be... Uh, I'm sorry. Well, well, this was their response to that. This, their response to the printing press and, and the spread of books and, and, and the, the, the slowly evolving affordability of books, because books were heretofore very expensive, that this was their response by, by making it so that no book could be printed unless a bishop had permission, that now earlier, under a different pope, the the, um, the 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 possession of Bibles had been banned, so so this virtually enforces that ban on on the possession of Bibles. Well, it's important to mention too that the Fifth Lateran Council was convened under Julius II, but he interestingly, coincidentally, died suddenly, and then his successor Leo X better known, or perhaps not better known, but also known by his birth name, Giovanni di Lorenzo dei Medici, who was a dei Medici pope, oversaw the closing of the Fifth Council of the Lateran. Well, well, that's what I explained a couple of, a couple of moments right. ago. That the, right, but he oversaw most of, Julius II only initiated the council. Most of the council what was... Um, overseen by Leo X, who was... Right, well, he, he scrapped all of the reforms that were going to address issues of corruption, indulgences, and then he brought in new reforms. Well, he would have called them reforms, but it was just more of the same Babylonian corruption. Well, well right, it forced usury on the people, and it banned, it, it virtually banned the printing of books that were not approved by the Roman Catholic bishops, which included the scripture, which included the Bibles, because Bibles were already, um, the Bible translations were already banned. So, so the Luther Bible would never have existed under the, these reforms of the Fifth Lateran Council, or so-called reforms, I should say, that they really simply um, tightened the noose of the papacy on the people. Now, the, um, the advent of usury basically paved the way for, for the, um, the, the, the control of, of the Jewish bankers over Europe. I, I mean, there's, right. uh, Christians simply didn't loan money at usury, but which, you know, circumstantially, and, and I only have circumstantial evidence, the De Medici's, they were bankers. They, they were bankers and... They came from, they descended from doctors. And, and Medici, it is the, 
it is right from the Latin word for medicine, right? It's not an Italian surname. No, no, it's not an Italian surname. And they were physicians at a time when Christians were precluded from being physicians. They were doctors and usurers at a time when Christians were precluded from being usurers. So, well, there's even more circumstantial and anecdotal evidence. When they were um, in charge of the papal states, they had three popes. They welcomed all the Jews from Portugal and Spain and France who were kicked out of those countries into the papal states. That's another mark against them. And when they were the Grand Dukes in Tuscany and in other cities in northern Italy, there were expulsions of Jews in some of those cities. The Dei Medicis were kicked out along with the Jews. Well, well, it seems to me that the De Medici's were indeed Jews. Right, and some of their contemporaries understood that. Supposedly converted to Catholicism, and um, through the money power that they had, being a family of bankers and physicians, that, that they obtained control to the degree where they could usurp the papacy and seat three popes from their family in, in short time and oversee the Fifth Lateran Council. Now, now, the Fifth Lateran Council, when it closed, shortly thereafter, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the church at Wittenberg. Now, now the 95 Theses were basically, his major complaint was indulgences. And, and Luther had, had um, railed against indulgences because, as he succinctly points out from Scripture, Christ already died and paid the price for all. And that's what the scripture says, where the Roman Catholic Church would soak the people again and again through their superstition to pay for their own salvation or or for the salvation of of their recently deceased ancestors and loved ones, which were what indulgences were all about. Uh, I mean, the... the, um, the priest would insist if you just lost your mother, God forbid, that, that, um, that she was in purgatory, which is a total invention of the Roman Catholic Church. They, that they controlled the minds of the people because they withheld the scripture from the people as much as they could, and, and, and they, they convinced you that your mother was in purgatory, and unless you came up with some money, that they, they weren't going to, to make the necessary prayer offerings to get her out. Or, or, right, I remember studying in history class, and they told us about John Tetzel, Johann Tetzel. He was this uh, monk. He was no riding around, you know, Riding around the Holy Roman Empire with a wagon and a barrel and telling people as soon as the coin into the barrel clings or rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And he was basically depleting the, the money. You know, he was shaking his peasants down, convincing them to part with all of their money. Well, well, right, and and Germany was the the major um, farm from which the the, the Roman Catholic Church had harvested indulgence money. It it simply was, and and that's pretty much established in in mainstream sources such as Wikipedia and and any mainstream history. That the um, I established all of this in in my. Revelation commentary for Re- Revelation chapters 10 and 11 and 17 and 18 a few years ago, and it's still available on Christogenia. That the um, in, including much of the treachery of Pope Leo X, who was really a De Medici, a, a banker, 
the the um the, the indulgences were what Martin Luther was primarily against in his ninety five thesis and, and the the threats on his life which sprung from the indulgences and, and um the the ensuing battle that resulted from from that and, and the support that he did have from from sufficient nobles in, in northern Germany that that um saved Martin Luther but but it also created Lutheran Protestantism. And as you said, most Lutherans are totally disconnected from Martin Luther, not only from from why the Lutheran Church was actually begun, but also they have no idea of how Martin Luther felt about the Jews. And if they did, they they would um well well they would probably be quite shocked. That there's no doubt because today they're taught in Protestant churches to worship Jews because they're God's chosen people, and, and basically the Jews have have replaced Christ Himself as the object of veneration in many of today's Protestant churches, but which is why we're at where we are today. Well, that's the fault of the leaders in the churches for not teaching better, and that's the fault of the people for not investigating on their own. Well, well, that, that's probably true in a lot of cases, but it's really that, that, that the Jews back from the time of Schofield and Bullinger had bought, and, and probably even before that, that because I'm finding evidence that... Um, certain Jews were actually paying Protestant churches in, in the form of contributions to teach that the Jews were God's chosen people. And, and the churches were accepting that money. That the, um, that there's evidence that Harvard was polluted with, um, well, Christian Harvard, right? It was founded as a Christian college, what was polluted with Jewish bribes from, from, from the 1700s from the Hayes family in, in Boston. It, it's, um, you know, when we, when we accept usury and, and we accepted Jewish money, it, it opened up Western society and, and the Jewish concepts of money. It opened up Western society to the, um, to the ability to be infiltrated, bought, and, and paid for by the Jews. There, there's no doubt. Usury was the slippery slope that arose that, that from which arose the emancipation of the Jew and, and the pollution of Christian Europe. That there's no doubt in my mind. So it seems, uh, I don't know, Julius too very um, conveniently, he, 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 he was sick for months be, before he died. He, he had already convened the Fifth Lateran Council and, and, and seems to have died very conveniently and, and um, it seems to me that Julius II labeling the Borgia, the, the Rodrigo Borgia, who, who was his predecessor as a Murano, and, and he did that himself. He, he made that statement that the man was a Murano Jew. It, it seems to me that there, there may have been a struggle in the 15th century between Jews and non-Jews for control of the papacy. And, and the de' Medici's eventually prevailed. And since Julius II survived several assassination attempts in his life and someone tried to poison him previously, I would think there's enough evidence to at least consider the possibility that he was administered small amounts of poison over a period of many months to weaken him and then maybe one final dose to do him off. 
Well, well, it's a possibility because of the attempts on his, the, the, the recorded attempts on his life that he that those people who wanted him out of the way eventually succeeded, and that's why he died at such an opportune time for those who, who wanted to usurp the Roman Catholic Church and, and turn it in, into a direction that favored the Jews very much. And, and the acceptance of usury, I, I think, it is the um, greatest contributor, is, is the greatest prize in, in the list of evils which resulted from the Fifth Lateran Council. That, that's my opinion. The Jews and Their Lies by Martin Luther, and, and I'm going to read from sections of part one, because Luther, at the first, he wasn't wise enough about the nature of the Jews. He actually accepted a lot of the works of the Jews, and he actually accepted the Jews as the people of God. And, and those things are not based on Scripture. Those things are based on misperceptions of, or, or poor perceptions of what the scripture teaches or I hope to elucidate a lot of that here tonight. Right, right from part one, I'm not going to get beyond part one of the Jews and their lives tonight and you can in contrast read some of his later statements but some of these statements um, none of us in Christian identity should agree with and, and they should lead us to realize that Luther, at least initially writing this paper, had the idea that there were good Jews and, and that he could follow them. And, and that's, well, that's bad. Well, I also wanted to say, too, it might not be just a misperception of Scripture. It could just be he's taking the Jews on their word. They come along and say they wrote the Old Testament. So he says, oh, okay, well, why would anyone lie about that? They must have written the Old Testament. Well, well you know... Luther had translated the New Testament. He translated the Bible. Martin Luther's Bible is a translation of Scripture. I think he did it from the Latin Vulgate. I'm not positive into German, but he translated the Bible, and and he should have been familiar enough with the meanings of words in the original language, especially in the New Testament. Whether he read the Greek New Testament or not is beyond me. I, I didn't. Perhaps we will discuss and present that at greater length in 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 a future episode based on this same on on this same treatise. And, and we should probably hold open that possibility. I don't know enough about the life of Martin Luther about his the details of his work. In, in order to state one way or the other, if he had done his Bible translation from the Greek rather than entirely from Latin, or when he had written it, when he had done his translation, did he do it before or after he wrote The Jews and Their Lies? I'm not sure. It seems to me he must have written The Jews and Their Lies after his translation because it was written three years before his death. I know he didn't translate scripture in the last three years of his life. Part one on the Jews and their lies. This, this edition is translated by Martin H. Bertram. Luther writes, I had made up my mind to write no more either about the Jews or against them, but since I learned that those miserable and accursed people do not cease to lure themselves even 
to lure to themselves, even us, that is the Christians, I have published this little book so that I might be found among those who opposed such poisonous activities of the Jews and who warned the Christians to be on their guard against them. I would not have believed that a Christian could be duped by the Jews into taking their exile and wretchedness upon himself. However, the devil is the god of the world, and wherever God's word is absent, he has an easy task, not only with the weak, but also with the strong. May God help us. Amen. That's the opening paragraph to the Jews and their lives. Let me say that first, that Luther was naive in taking for granted that the Jews were Israelites in exile. The words of Christ, as Luther will even cite himself later in the same part of the Jews and their lives, the words of Christ state the exact opposite. According to the words of Christ in Luke chapter 21, and, and I cite specifically verse 24, the Jews, or those people who we know today as Jews, are the enemies of Christ, and they are to be persecuted wherever they are found. And I'm not going to quote that here because Luther himself quotes that passage a little later in this, in, in this first part of his treatise. To continue with Luther, he says, Grace and peace in the Lord. Dear sir and good friend, I have received a treatise in which a Jew engages in dialogue with a Christian. He dares to pervert the scriptural passages which we cite in testimony to our faith concerning our Lord Christ and Mary his mother, and to interpret them quite differently. With this argument, he thinks he can destroy the basis of our faith. It is my reply to you and to him. It is not, and this part of Luther's attitude is, 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 I believe, right on the money, where he says, it is not my purpose to quarrel with the Jews, nor to learn from them how they interpret or understand Scripture. I know all of that very well already. Much less do I propose to convert Jews, for that is impossible now, in this next line, I'm going to show where Luther screws up, right? Those two excellent men, Lyra and Bergensis, together with others, truthfully describe the Jews' vile interpretation for us 200 and 100 years ago, respectively. Indeed, they refuted it thoroughly. However, this was no help at all to the Jews, and they have grown steadily worse. Now, he cites two, as he calls them, excellent men, Lyra and Bergensis. Now, Luther has already made the statement that he doesn't want to quarrel with the Jews, and it's a good statement. We shouldn't fight with the Jews. You can't convince the devil that he's not a devil. You can't convince the devil that anything good and righteous and truly godly should prevail, because the devil is contrary to all men and, and certainly contrary to God, right, <clears throat> and, and to Christ. So, so that's a, a, a good statement from Luther. But the bad statement here, and it's good that, that Luther says, much less do I propose to convert the Jews, for that is impossible. And he's right. 
But the bad statement is here, here is citing those two excellent men, Lyra and Bergensis, and I don't know if Luther was aware of it or not, but Lyra and Bergensis were both converso Jews who wrote against Judaism after they were supposedly converted. Nicholas of Lyra was born a Jew in 1279 AD, and eventually he became a Catholic and a Franciscan teacher. Bergensis is also known as Paul of Burgos, and he was, at birth he was named Solomon Ha-Levi, Solomon the Levite. In, in Hebrew, right? He was a Talmudic scholar, and he was a rabbi. Now, what Luther refers to here are Bible commentaries, which were written by Lyra, and they were later appended by Bergensis, the Talmudic scholar. Lyra is even until this very day considered to be a prominent early scholar of what we call biblical exegesis. And he was actually a corrupter of Christianity through his insistences upon a very literal, literal interpretation of all Scripture and a disconnect of Scripture with its historical context. I, I think Lyra, I, I'm not going to read his commentary, and, and I don't even know if it could be obtained, but if Luther believes that Jews can't be converted, and if Luther doesn't really care about how Jews interpret or understand Scripture, he must have read and been impacted by the writings of those two excellent men, Lyra and Bergensis, who lived Bergensis a century before him, and Lyra, Nicholas of Lyra, two centuries before him. Well, well Luther must have been affected by those people, and, and they were basically infiltrators and corruptors of Christianity, in, in my purview, that they were um, converso Jews who, who set out to define Christianity in their own terms. That now Burgos, Paul of Burgos, the Talmudic scholar, he allegedly became vehemently anti-Judaism, but it's also well known that he continued to correspond with other rabbis. After well, look at um supposed conversion. Brother Nathaniel seems to be anti-Jewish, doesn't he? Well, well, right. And the thing is that when you read their writings, when you read their statements and and you see their doctrines, they're universalists. They're the biggest proponents of universalism. And and Paul of Burgos, Bergensis, he was actually a proponent. Uh, of the conversion of the forced conversion of all so-called Jews and, and and the integration of Jews into into the Christian population. Well, that would just aid in their assimilation and wreck the bloodlines in Europe. Well, well, absolutely. It, it would accelerate the destruction of Christian Europe by mixing the Aryan blood with the Jewish, and we know that. But it's not so obvious to me that Luther understood it. What when he quotes these Morano Jews and calls them excellent men? Well, thinking about one of the reforms Brother Nathaniel called for recently, he insisted that all American Jews should have to give up their Israeli citizenship if they have any, and they should be made to basically live as honest Americans. I'm not interested in making them more palatable to 
the mainstream blue-collar workers, oh, this is a good American patriot, you know, he can marry my daughter. I'm not interested in aiding in their assimilation into our nation. If they're assimilated into the nation, that basically means the end of the nation. Well, well right. I, I mean, anybody who actually studies the history of Judea should understand that those people who were left <clears throat> after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, those people who denied Christ, those people who continued to reject Christianity, they were Edomite Jews. They were Canaanites. They were not the children of Israel. That message is a, a strong message throughout the gospel. Right through from, from the letters of Paul, the, the, the um, Luke chapter 11, John chapter 8, um, 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 4, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, Romans chapter 9, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. All of those passages of Scripture demonstrate what with all certainty in concert with the histories of Flavius Josephus and evidence from, the, from other sources concerning the nature of the people of Judea prove beyond all doubt that those people left standing who, re, who continued to reject Christ, they were Edomites. They were Canaanites. They were not Israelites. And it, it may take a lot of study to, to come to that realization. Martin Luther was indeed a man in that position to do that studying. Now, it's, it seems to me in part one of his treatise, The Jews and Their Lies, he did not have that understanding. He certainly did not. He continued to take for granted that the Jews were dispersed Israelites. And that's quite clear when he continually talks about their exile. But if you read a bit further... An appraisal of mankind, he writes, Jews are young devils, condemned to hell. Maybe mild-hearted and gentle Christians will believe I am too rigorous and drastic against the poor, afflicted Jews, believing that I ridicule them and treat them with much sarcasm. By my word, I am far too weak to be able to ridicule such a satanic breed. I would fain do so. But they are far greater adepts at mockery than I, and possess a God who is a master in this art. It is, it, it is the evil one himself. Even with no further evidence in the Old Testament, I would maintain, and no person on earth could alter my opinion, that the Jews as they are today are veritably a mixture of all the depraved and malevolent knaves of the whole world over, who have been dispersed in all countries, similarly to the Tatars, Gypsies, and such folk to afflict the different nations with their usury, to spy upon others, and to betray, to poison wells, to deceive, and to kidnap children. In short, to practice all kinds of dishonesty and injury. This was in 1543. Well, well right. Well, this entire paper was written in, in 1543, the, the young devil's comment is, is from the um, from part eleven, I believe, of this paper, or or perhaps it's part nine, and I have dyslexia. I, I think it's part eleven. It's an extract from the pamphlet von Shem Humphoras und vom 
Geschlecht Christi. Well, well, right, but he's taking comments of Luther's from part four of the paper and from from part 11. It is 11. It's not nine. I'm sorry, of the paper, and, and he's... He, he's summarizing them, right? Right. I mean, Luther says those things, but, but he says them in different places. I, I don't know how much time transpires between, or, or what happened in Luther's life between part one of the Jews and their lies and, and part 11 of the Jews and their lies. I, I don't, the, the whole thing, I believe from the sources I've seen, the, the entire treatise was written in 1543. But right. Part one of the Jews and their lies, he, he his entire attitude is that the Jews were, were the legitimate inhabitants of Jerusalem who were expelled under Vespasian and Titus. Right, but you know Luther wrote almost thirty two hundred things that they still have, basically copies of, you know, or excerpts of, or referenced by other people. He wrote thirty two hundred different pieces in his life. So it's possible maybe he started the Jews and their lives in January of 1543, got sidetracked on something else, learned a few things, had a sudden epiphany, realized who the Jews were, and he finished it in December of 1543. I don't know. Well, well I don't, but I'd like to continue reading part one and, and, and perhaps we'll, we'll um, offer further parts of this later on. And you, you're more than welcome to to um, read other passages or or make other statements in response to some of these things. But but what's important is that we do see that even though Luther thought the Jews were devils, that there's no doubt that they were vipers, that they were evil, that they were an evil race, ju- just as the New Testament describes them. He still thinks that they were the people of Israel. His misunderstanding of the historical basis for, for the conflict in the New Testament leads him to make these errors. If you have that misunderstanding about the, the um, identity of the Jews, the people that call themselves Jews after 70 AD, then you're always going to be in conflict about the nature of the Jews and about the fate of the Jews, about what should be done about the Jewish problem. You're always going to have that conflict, and Martin Luther clearly had that conflict. Even though he had no use for the Jews, he still prayed at the very end of the Jews and and their lives that that Christ should convert them. If Jesus Christ couldn't convert them after three years in, in Jerusalem speaking to, to them the way he did, that they're never going to be converted. That's the point. That, and I have to wonder, did, did Luther realize that Leo X was a crypto-Jew? I would think not, even though Leo X was the one who was, he was Pope at the time of Luther's 95 Theses, and he's the one who basically put the hit squads out to go after Luther. Should I mention briefly just to, just exactly how Leo X got his start in the church? Yeah, why don't you do that? Because we didn't, uh, I've mentioned Leo X, but didn't even describe, I, I don't think I described that he wasn't even a priest. I, I did in, in Christreich, I mentioned it, but he wasn't even a priest when he became the Pope. Go ahead. Right. Leo X 
born, you know, um, Giovanni de Medici, he got his start in the Catholic Church when he was 13 years old and became a cardinal. And there's a story behind how he became a cardinal. Pope Innocent VIII, who was a shameless, nepotistic, corrupt, basically thug, he was Pope. Well, he was, died. Wasn't Innocent VIII of Borgia? Innocent VIII, I do not believe he was a Borgia. Okay. Okay, I'm not. I just think he, he, so. I think he was just a, a very wicked and corrupt man. It's possible, you know, there might have been another crypto Jew. No, Innocent the Eighth was born Giovanni Battista yeah, right. Seba. Okay. He was supposedly a um, Greek from Genoa, which you know I, I can't confirm or deny that. I I do not know exactly his origins, but I, I do know from what's recorded, he was wickedly corrupt. And he died in 1492. He left some illegitimate children that had been born to him before he entered the clergy. In 1487, he arranged the marriage of his oldest son, Francetto Sibo, to Maddalena de Medici, the daughter of Lorenzo de Medici, and in return, Lorenzo de Medici obtained a cardinal's appointment for his 13-year-old son, Giovanni, who later became Pope Leo X. So basically, Innocent VIII, who's not all that innocent apparently, he arranges a marriage for his eldest son to a daughter of Lorenzo de Medici, Lorenzo de Medici at the time being one of the richest men in Italy, I believe Lorenzo de Medici. He was the one they called Lorenzo the Magnificent. He must have had quite a lot of money. I'm sure the girl came with quite a dowry. And in exchange, Lorenzo's son becomes a cardinal at the age of 13. That's not corrupt, though. That, that's just, you know, um, politics as usual with the Vatican. And this cardinal Giovanni, this 13-year-old child, eventually becomes the pope and sends people out to try and kill Martin Luther. They didn't succeed, though. But they tried. To continue... So this, well, well, no, that's, that, that's, all, that, that's all interesting to, to, to demonstrate how the, the papacy was just a, 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 a pulpit for political horrors of the time. Right, and I'm sure Luther had to be aware that they were handing out cardinal hats to 13- and 15-year-old boys just because their daddies had a lot of money, and they were giving money to the church. Right, I mean, okay. this is sort of the backdrop to which Luther's reform comes about. It's not as though the church is blameless and everything's all well and good, and he just has a theological dispute. The church was about as corrupt as a mafia racket. Well, well, right, and that was the um, the, the basis for, for Louis XII in, in France for his revolt against the church. What well, was a demand for reforms? And, and he was put down by, by the Swiss. He, he was defeated by the Swiss, who, who were fighting on behalf of Julius II, but, but that was the basis for his for for his revolt and and there were um that there there were several I, I don't know if there were cardinals or bishops i believe there were bishops he he had several bishops on his side i mean he 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 wasn't doing it without any um ecclesiastical basis for doing it to get, right you know 
at the time. Have you read the Divine Comedy by Dante? No, I wouldn't read Dante. It, All right, well, Dante, if I recall, he even placed some of the popes in purgatory and in hell. So, I mean, this corruption, they were people he, he considered to be wickedly corrupt. So this corruption, it goes back well before, you know, the, the De Medici's and the Borgias. Evidently. Right, so I, I see this as basically the ascension of the Borgias and the De Medici's to the papacy in the 1400s and 1500s. It's basically the culmination of a 200-year-long struggle by crypto-Jews to break their way in to the papacy. They besieged it for 200 years, and finally they grabbed it up using their temporal power, their money. They basically bought their way in. Well, well there are plenty of Catholic apologists to this day who try to cover up or, or minimize the, the crimes of the Demonicians and, and the Borgias. Well, you know, Christ said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. The Catholic Church can't be his church because it's been in the hands of Jews for several hundred years. Well, well, absolutely. There's no doubt the Catholic Church is in its church. The Catholic Church ha has never been the institution that, that, that Paul of, of Tarsus and the other apostles left behind. Well, right. Paul, didn't go, Paul wasn't riding around the Roman Empire with a wagon telling people to toss coins in the barrel and their loved ones would go to heaven. Well, right. Let, let me continue with part one of the Jews and their lies. That they have failed to learn any lesson from the terrible distress that has been theirs for over 1,400 years in exile. Now, now he, he, he continuously calls this exile, even though he himself will quote the, the, the passage from Luke and the words of Christ that, that say that there's going to be wrath upon the people of Jerusalem and, and that it's termed vengeance. And, and we'll talk about that a, a little more shortly. Nor can they obtain any end or definite terminus of this, as they suppose, by means of the vehement cries and laments to God. If these blows, mean, meaning that they're, the, the wrath that they have suffered, if these blows do not help, it is reasonable to assume that our talking and explaining will help even less. That now the um, Luther consistently insisted the dispersion of the Jews is an exile, and Christ said it was actually the persecution that was going to come upon his enemies. The true people of Israel and Judah were sent into exile, according to the Old Testament and the Assyrian inscriptions and and other corroborating sources, nearly seven to eight hundred years before the diaspora of the Jews. And, and even the Apostle James wrote his epistles to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And James died in 62 AD, eight years before the, the destruction of Jerusalem. And he wrote to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. There were no 12 tribes in Judea. And he did not write to the 12 tribes in Judea. There was a remnant of, of um, that there were elements of a remnant of Judah, the ancient people of, of Judah from 
returned, a small segment of them returned from the Babylonian exile, that there were elements of a remnant of them in Judea, but there were no 12 tribes in Judea. To continue with Luther, therefore a Christian should be content and not argue with the Jews. Well, well you know, a Christian should be content and not argue with the Jews based on, on the, the words of the apostles. One example I'll give is 2 John 9 through 11. And the apostle in his epistle, he says that anyone going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not God. And if he abides in the teaching, then he does. Now, this is applicable to the first century. This isn't applicable to what we call crypto-Jews. And John says, if one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not even speak to welcome that person. I mean, it's... Christians shouldn't even accept the persons of Jews. Well, how about Matthew 5.25? Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast in the prison. Yeah, yeah, but nothing in the Sermon on, nothing in the, sermon on the Mount is applicable to our relations with the enemies of God. The Sermon on the Mount is given by Christ to his followers, and it's only applicable to the children of Israel who, who submit themselves to Christ. It's not applicable. Right. To, nothing in the Sermon on the Mount is applicable to the enemies of God. Christ tells the children of Israel to agree with their enemies who are other children of Israel. He doesn't tell the children of Israel to agree with his enemies. Well, we have to take that in context. Right, but if a Jew comes along and says that you're ignorant, you don't know anything about history, you're not a nice person, there's no purpose and there's no point in arguing with them. Walk away. No, no just um, I, I, I'd like to tell him just to have fun in a lake of fire. That's where <laughs> it's, you know, burn in hell. You're a Jew. Go away. You, you, we should have nothing at all to do with these people. Nothing. There are no good Jews. There are no good, no good people descend from 80 generations of Christ deniers. It, it doesn't happen. Right, so we're not going to arrange a program where we invite rabbis on to debate them, and we're not going to bring, you know, blacks that think they're the tribe of Judah. We're, we're not going to deal with those people. Well, it's absurd, right? I'm not talking to, to devils, and I'm not talking to animals. There's no sense in debating with your dog over what's for dinner. Therefore, a Christian should be content and not argue with the Jews. Now, now, now that's a good, uh, a good piece of advice. But if you have or want to talk with them, do not say any more of it than this. Listen, Jew, you are aware that Jerusalem and your sovereignty, together with your temple and priesthood, have been destroyed for 14, over 1,460 years. That, and, and even that's reasoning with the Jew. I, I wouldn't even do that, right? So this year, we, which we Christians write, is the year 1542, so we see when he began this treatise. Since the birth of Christ is exactly 1,468 years, going on 1,500 years since Vespasian and Titus destroyed Jerusalem and expelled the Jews from the city, let the Jews bite on this nut and dispute this question as long as they wish. And, and, and that's all well and good, but, but um, it, it's not even necessary. And in reference to this, 
in reference to, to what happened in Judea and Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, since Luther refers to the destruction of the city and the temple, Paul of Tarsus had written to the Romans. Paul of Tarsus wrote to the Romans in 57 AD, as I recently established in my presentation on the book of Acts, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. That was fulfilled 13 years after Paul wrote those words when the city and the temple were destroyed. With this, Luther should have realized that those Jews who opposed Christ were those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. A warning which Christ conveys twice in the Revelation. Luther, in my estimation, failed to do so and continued to accept the Jews as Israel, where I believe if he had investigated the history of Judea from the works of Josephus and, and other sources, he should have seen that the Jews were not Israel. He, he failed to make, uh, I mean, he might call them a race of devils and vipers later on, and he's describing their nature, and he's correct. That is their nature, but it's also their origin. They're not Israel. And, and I believe he failed to realize that. And, and if we don't realize that, we're going to continue to be smitten with the idea that there are good Jews and, and that Jews are somehow salvageable, as even Luther was. At the very end of this treatise, he, he prays for their conversion. What where possible, Christ tells us that the Jews are going to be converted when he returns. Christ tells us that the Jews are going to be converted at the end. But he tells them to converted to ashes. That's what the Jews are going to be converted to, according to the scripture. <clears throat> well, towards the end, in Luther's last sermon, Wanting Against the Jews, he writes, Besides, you also have many Jews living in the country who do much harm. You should know that the Jews blaspheme and violate the name of our Savior day for day, for that reason, you, my lords and men of authority, should not tolerate, but expel them. They are our public enemies and incessantly blaspheme our Lord Jesus Christ. They call our Blessed Virgin Mary a harlot and her Holy Son a bastard, and to us they give the epithet of changelings and abortions. If they could kill us all, they would gladly do so. In fact, many of them murder Christians, especially those professing to be surgeons and doctors. They know how to deal with medicaments in the manner of the Italians, the Borgias and Medicis, who gave people poison which brought about their death in one hour or in a month. Therefore, deal with them harshly, as they do nothing but excruciatingly blaspheme our Lord Jesus Christ, trying to rob us of our lives, our health, our honor, and belongings. For that reason, I cannot have patience nor carry on intercourse with these deliberate blasphemers and violators of our beloved Savior. Well, well right. And, and here the error is that he called the Borgias and, and the De Medici's Italians. Right. Even his own pope. And Luther was uh, probably a young priest or, 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 or at least within reach of the time. It, it couldn't have been too far before his time that that um that Julius II had labeled Borgia as a Murano Jew. 
And, and they were. The Borgias were. It's very clear in their history that they were Murano Jews. So, so that 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 was that statement was within reach, and and that sentiment must have been within reach of Luther. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm trying to attribute too much knowledge to him, but he, he well, Luther was about thirty when Julius II died. So Luther would have been a young priest during the um, Fifth Lateran Council when Julius II suddenly died and was replaced by Leo X. So he probably would have been in his twenties when. Julius II made the statement declaring that the Borgias were Murano Jews, but it's not known if he heard the statement or if he saw the, um, the pamphlet, assuming it was written somewhere. Well, well, right, but he calls them Italians. So, so that, that's it, whether he did it purposely or not, it, it's an error to call a Jew an Englishman. It's an error to call a Jew an American. It's an error to call a Jew an Italian. It's an error to call a converso Jew a Catholic or a Protestant. Right, a Jew is a Jew. Especially a Christian. Call a spade a spade. And that we should be aware of that also. That the, um, that the, the, the Jew is a Jew no matter what mask he decides to put on at any particular time. And history has proven that to us. That maybe Luther didn't have enough history. Well, let me say that by the time of Martin Luther, how many pogroms against Jews in Europe had there already been? I mean, the first crusade, where many of the, the Jews of Frankfurt were, um, were destroyed by, by Christian crusaders, the, the first crusade preceded Luther's time by nearly 400 years, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. 1096, I want to say, was when they called for the first crusade. Oh, okay. Well, well, that's 400 years. It, it preceded Luther's time by 400 years, and and perhaps a little more. So, so, um, I mean, there, there were many problems of Jews in Europe in in the intervening 400 years. The 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 problems with Jewish ritual murder had had already um been addressed in in many places in Europe. The 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 ordeal of Simon the Trent and William of Norwich in England and, and other young children who, who were um, victims of Jewish ritual murder and, and it had been going on in Hungary and Italy and Germany and in England for centuries before Luther's time, that there were already um, handbills and, and things which were circulating, portraying Jewish rabbis as devils by Luther's time, and, and um, some of those are, are reproduced on Christogenia. Right, and I would think he would have had to know that Alexander VI, a lawyer by trade before entering into the church, who basically fled Spain, he wasn't leaving Spain just because he didn't like the weather. He was leaving Spain because the Jews were being kicked out. Well, doesn't it seem absolutely. doesn't it seem odd that a man would get a doctorate of law? They declared that Borgia was the most eminent and judicious jurisprudent, the greatest legal scholar of the era. And then he became a you know he entered the church around that time. His uncle was the pope at the time, and provided him an entrance into the church. Alphonse de Borgia who was the Pope from 
Well, well, the Borg, the history of Borgia is is, is um, certainly worth examining in greater detail. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a scholar of medieval Europe. Believe me, I'm, I'm far from it. I, I have very little reading in the period, only enough to um, elucidate the things that, that that I've written on Christogenia, such as my Christoid commentary and things like that. It, it's not. It, it's out of my general. Um, it's out of the, the the period that I like to read about, which is the pre-Christian era, and that's where most of my reading is. So, so I simply don't know enough about the Borgias and and the De Medici's. However, and and the struggle in the church. However, it's clear from the little that I have read, it, it's clear that there was a, a Morano or Converso Jewish usurpation of the papacy. And the struggle between Jews and and at least certain anti anti Jewish clergymen and for control and the Jews the Jews won out. Now, how long that they had that control is, is um is debatable. I would say they've controlled it until this very day. The Thirty Years' War and and many of the other wars against. Christian Europeans and and white Europe in in one way or another are a result of the Jewish control of the Catholic Church. The the um the assault of of, of the Catherine de Medici against the Huguenot Protestants in France. Right, Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre, fifteen seventy two. It, it plunged France into a decades long civil war. Right, and and that was a short time after Martin Luther. That was thirty years after Martin Luther. Thirty years after he wrote this. Without without a doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that the the Thirty Years' War, that the um, the extermination of the Huguenots, all, all of these things are, are part of the satanic struggle against the white white European peoples. Because the Jews, if they could control the Roman Catholic Church, they can control white Europeans at that time, before the Reformation, before Protestantism. And I really believe that the the Jewish, um, the moneyed Jewish families like the Borgias and de Medici's and others did indeed seek to do that. And at the time of the Fifth Lateran Council, had believed that they had prevailed to do that. And right, then Martin Luther threw a wrench in that. Martin Luther threw a giant wrench in that. So even though Luther, even though Martin Luther didn't have, uh, in my purview, a thorough historical understanding of the real identity of the people calling themselves Jews, he did not have that. He still knew that they were evil, and he still knew that that. Christianity, that, that Roman Catholicism, what was headed down the, the wrong path and that something should be done about it. So, so he, he was a brave man and, and he, he was um, he, he did well in a lot of ways. I'm not belittling him, but we have to understand what he did right and what he did wrong so that we don't repeat these mistakes. There are so many people that are white nationalists and people in Christian identity who still uphold the viewpoint that there could be good Jews. 
or that Jews can come to Christ. Jews can't come to Christ because Christ, the Bible, is a book all about race, and the Jew bastards are always and forever corruptors of all of God's creation. They are and what did Jesus say? They are destroyers of race. They are anti-whites. They always have been. They always will be, as Paul of Tarsus said, contrary to all men. You, even the Jews that most white nationalists think are good Jews are still universalists and antichrists in a lot of aspects. Well, what was it Christ said? You did not choose me. I chose you. No man can draw close to me unless my Father in Heaven, you know, compels, you know, makes it possible. Well, right. No man can come to me unless my Father in Heaven has called him. And, and you haven't chosen me, I've chosen you. That choosing, right. that choosing happened in the Old Testament. And none right. of those people were Jews. The Israelites are the ancestors of many of the white Europeans of today. That can be thoroughly established in ancient history. There's a whole lot of podcasts on, on Christogenia that do that. I'm not the only one that does it, that there are many writers before me who, who, who have had their own attempts to, to portray that. But the, the, um, the, the Jews are not the Israelites. It's that simple. It, it's well-established in the New Testament. It's well-established in the histories of Josephus. And it's, it's well-established by their own statements and their own genetics, that there's a lot of ways to establish it, that they're, they're basically an amalgamation of, of a bunch of different peoples from all over the damn world. But well, you know, How many of them did Christ attempt to... Did Christ ever minister to them? Did he ever attempt to convert a single one of them at any point in his ministry? Well, well, you know, he, he did speak to Pharisees, and, and, and he did dine with them, but those Pharisees, a lot of them were Israelites. Right, but let's, let's think about Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman. Did he say to her, your daughter is healed, come and follow me? What did he tell her to do? Well, well right, he told her to get lost. The, 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 um, Go thy way. He never sought to convert his enemies. He, he, he never had conversations... That, that he initiated with the Sadducees, that there's records that they accosted him a few times. He never had kind words for them. It can be established that the Sadducees were indeed Edomites. That can be established. Uh, I presented that, that, that um, assertion several times in my Book of Acts presentation. It, it's um, that the Sadducees were, were actually the high priests that killed him and persecuted the apostles and not the Pharisees. That there, There's a lot of technical aspects of, of, of that period in history that can be sorted out, but the bottom line is that he told the Jews who opposed him that they were not his sheep, and that that was why they did not believe him. He told them that they had a different origin than he did, that their father was different than his, that they didn't come from God. If they're bastards and, and Canaanites, they were accursed people, and if they're bastards, they certainly did not come from God because God didn't create any bastards. He, he didn't create the mongrel races. The sins of men created the mongrel races. The sins of men created bastards. And, and we shouldn't. The test of Job is not to blame God for our sin. And we should not attempt 
to persuade God to accept the fruits of our sin. Christ said that there was no good tree to produce bad fruit, and there was no bad tree that could produce good fruit. And so you're, men you're don't not going gather, men don't gather grapes from thorns. Grapes come from grapes. Thorns come from thorns. We don't gather grapes from thorns and figs from thistles. So if you um, plant wheat in a field and then tears pop up, something's wrong. Yeah, yeah right. You're not going to take the tears and put them in your bread. It, it's not going to happen. You're, you're going to discard them. Right, and in fact, if you plant wheat and you wind up with tares, that means the enemy must have come into the field when you weren't there and sowed the tares. Absolutely. Do you think, is it fair to say that if Martin Luther had lived a bit longer, read a bit more, he might have come to understand the basics of two seed line, or do you think he was starting to understand that right towards the end of his life, that the well, Jews well, were a satanic seed? Well, well, it seems to me that he knew that they were inherently evil, but it seems to me, I, I haven't read enough of, of this treatise yet. I mean, I read it 10, 12, 14, probably 14 years ago, and I don't, I, I simply never read it again until you mentioned doing a program on it two days ago, and I had to try to spend all day yesterday traveling from New York, right? I, I didn't have a chance to read 80 pages, so so I, I apologize for that. But, but you know, the, this um, it, it seems to me that he thought that they were an accursed race, and, and many um, – medieval and, and early modern pastors that were otherwise good men and realized that Jews were evil had thought this. He thought they were, they were an accursed race simply because they rejected Christ. The truth is that they rejected Christ because they were an accursed race. And I don't know how these people read the Bible, but Christ said, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. Right. He didn't say, you are not my sheep because you don't believe me. Right. And the Catholic Church takes the words of Christ and twists them around and teaches that they're not his sheep because they didn't believe him, where he said they didn't believe him because they were not his sheep. And if they're not his sheep, they can't be Israelites. Where do we go to find that they're not Israelites? We go to the history of Josephus and we study it. And once we study the history of Josephus, and we study it in concert with the words of the prophets, such as Ezekiel chapters 34 and 35, which make it very clear that the children of Esau were going to usurp the nations of Israel and Judah after they were led off into captivity. Ezekiel makes that very clear in Ezekiel chapters 34 and 35. Once we study the prophets in concert, with the histories of Josephus, and then we read passages like Romans chapter 9, which Josephus even cites, uh, I'm sorry, which Luther even cites in his first part of his treatise, and miss, he only cites half of it. He doesn't understand the other half, and, and I'll, I, well, we might get to that tonight, but somehow I doubt it. It might have to wait for another, uh, maybe a part two, because I would like to continue with this. Well, we might get to that. 
if he'd have read Romans chapter 9, he'd have seen that Paul's clearly saying that not everybody in Israel is of Israel. And Paul goes on to compare Jacob and Esau and the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy. And when you read that and you understand Ezekiel 34 and 35 and, and, and what Ezekiel's saying about Esau usurping Israel and Judah, and, and then you read the histories of Josephus and actually see that the Maccabees went out and converted all the Edomites. They converted all the Edomites to Judaism. Once you see that, you'll understand that those people that Christ was talking to, once you see that Herod the Edomite usurped the priest, usurped the kingship and, and used the priesthood as a political tool for his cronies, you'll see that what Paul is telling us is that these people who were opposed to Christ in the New Testament, they're Edomites. They're not Israelites. That's why Christ told them, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. That's why Christ told us that they're not Judah. They say they're Judeans and they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. Because the Edomites are part of the bastard races, the Canaanite races, who were accursed by God, who the children of Israel were supposed to exterminate in the days of Joshua, and they failed to do it. And, and they were supposed to exterminate all of the other, all of the Canaanites, and the Edomites were, were to be accursed and excluded forever, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 20. It, it's, it, it's not that these people are, are cursed, and that's why they're opposed to Christ, and these people are the Jews of today. So there's no doubt. And, and we have all these sources to understand it. But you can't put that thread together without a thorough, un, thorough understanding of the history. On the other hand, if Martin Luther had put that together and had taught that and people had believed it, many of the prophecies of the Revelation and, and the book of Daniel would never have come true. Right, because they would have started pogroms on a continental scale back then. So, so we have the, the revelation that we have by the grace of God in, in this time, but that doesn't stop us from going back and looking at Martin Luther's work and seeing what's good in it, what, what is good in it, and much of it is good, and, and where his mistakes were. And, and his first mistake is that he maintained the belief even though he understood that they were cursed because they rejected Christ, he still maintained the belief that these people were the people of God when they were indeed the enemies of God. And he still maintained the prayer, as he, he says at the very end of, of this treatise, may Christ, our dear Lord, convert them mercifully and preserve us steadfastly. Now, now that prayer is basically, uh, I'm not saying it's the direct um, the, the direct precedent, but that prayer reflects the waywardness of all these Judaized Christian churches today who think that the Jews are going to be converted when Christ returns and be good people, and, and that's why we have to kiss their asses now. And, and that is absolutely incredulous, because the only thing the Jews are going to be converted to when Christ returns is the ashes. That they are not his people, they're his enemies, they've been the enemies of him, our God, our race, 
ever since the dawn of time. And Luther failed to see that. And, and today's Protestants still follow Luther. In that respect, they follow Luther. Well, they're Lutherans in name only. Well, well, right, and, and the Baptists and, and a lot of the others have the same beliefs that the Jews are just wayward people, and, and they're all going to be good Christians at the end of time, and, and it's not true that they're all going to be ashes at the end of time. Heaven is a world without Jews, and, and, and all of the animals that they've dragged in to, to white nations to, to destroy us, heaven is a world without Jews, there's no doubt. Amen. I think we're going to continue this in, in um, what well, we're going to continue this in future segments. Perhaps we, we will mix up presentations of Martin Luther's The Jews and Their Lies. Well, we didn't even get in, in, in the two pages of, of part one. Well, we're going to continue this in the future. What well, we might interrupt segments of our two seed line series but with segments of Martin Luther's The Jews and Their Lives. But we have to continue the two C-line series. That has to be our, our precedent because I, I really want that there's a, a lot of things left that we have left to expound upon. All right, so we'll trek on with Genesis in the two C-line series, and we will come back to revisit Luther periodically when people need a break from Genesis. Well, perhaps, or maybe when we need a break from Genesis. Uh, we only have may, maybe, um, I, I'm thinking probably four or five installments of Pragmatic Genesis left. Uh, I mean, we, we have to spend some time yet with, with, with the flood in Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 11, and, and we, Genesis chapter 15, but which we've already begun discussion on. And, and from there, we have, to, um, well, we have to go to the story of Jacob and Esau. And from there, we have to go to the blessings of the tribes. Perhaps we should talk about the blessing of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And I would like to give some of the historical background for that, which is um, wanting from, from, from most Christian expositions. But, but um, that, that's left to see. Um, that can be done. It, it's um, left to be decided how much of that we'll get into but but we have Genesis 15 and and then the story of Jacob and Esau and, and from there the um, the blessings of the tribes from from Jacob and things like that are going to be important to discuss in 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 a um, from a two seed line perspective and and from a Christian identity perspective and, and from there we have to go on to um, to find what well, we are going to find legitimate references to the non-white races in the books of the prophets and the Old Testament. They are there, but they're not who you think. They're not who most people think. That the, um, the whole beast of the field argument it is, it is basically a lot of it's a, um, a distraction. I mean, some of it's legitimate, but simply because it, even if the other races are beasts of the field, well, well, that's a pejorative. It, it's it's a pejorative. It's like when I call somebody a clown, it doesn't mean they dress up with makeup and a red nose and big shoes. It it, it it's a pejorative. I mean, right. nothing wrong with the clown if that's your occupation. But but the way I use it is 
as a pejorative. It's like Christ called the the woman of Canaan a dog. I mean, there's nothing wrong. Uh, being a dog, I, I mean, if you're a dog, if it's true, there's nothing wrong with it. But but he called the woman a dog as a pejorative. It's a word that's right. That, that's not by itself a, an, an insult, but but it's used in an insulting manner. Right. Okay, this has been um well well we'll call this part one of the Jews and their lies and and um we'll, we'll probably be back before the end of the year with, with with a second part or or even a third. In the meantime, I believe next week we are going to present Pragmatic Genesis Part Nine. Right, and at some point in the future, we're going to probably have like a ten part series on this National Socialist document that. I have to scan all 600 pages and get a copy to you, and a copy for the MK site. It's going to take me months to to get to read that, to get the time to read that. So it's going to be a while. All right. And it'll probably take me an afternoon to scan that. So. Yeah, Galway willing, that'll be the later part of 2014. Okay, so all right. thanks for joining me, and praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, everybody. I will be here praise next Yahweh. week. I, I'm going to, uh, I have Acts chapter 22 to present next. I'm not sure if I'm going to do that next week or, or discuss something else. I'm undecided. I have a couple of ideas for the next couple of programs. Please watch for the announcements at christiganea.org. Praise Yahweh and good night. Praise Yahweh. Good night. Thank you.